Rusty Quill presents. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Whatever was happening with the half-maids, whoever had left that vampire in the river to rot, it was unsettling Casper. I could tell he had theories. He was spending more and more time at Ross and Eponine's vampire sanctuary, trying to get a sense of the youngsters who had come and gone from there over the last couple of years. Trouble was, nobody was really keeping track. Turnover was high. Disappearing was not unusual. The vampire Cass found in the river, Moira, she was unusual because she was a few decades old when she vanished, but even then... It was worthy of comment, but not investigation, not really, except that there were so many vampires who had been in York before. York, it turns out, is a pretty great place to be a vampire. There are lots of narrow streets which are at least partially in shade for most of the day, and the layout of the city hasn't changed too much in a few hundred years, so it's a great place to use as a base you can return to every few decades. There's no central organising body of vampires or anything, no groups of them culminating in nests that grow bloated and wealthy over centuries of well-invested stock. Most vampires live short, unremarkable lives. They're turned and they're likely to die within a year. It's not strange for them to drop in and out of small fringe communities that pop up in places like York. Ros and Eponine provided a stopping point for youngsters who would otherwise have probably died on the street, but they didn't look out for them. It wasn't like a family, more like a hostel and the vampires that lived there did so with the idea that they would leave eventually if they were able to live long enough. It provided a place to lie down and sleep and know you were safe. It provided a place to go where there were no humans you might accidentally kill. All that is to say, well, vampires are pretty hard to keep track of. There's no way of knowing how many of them were missing, which of those who had been lost track of had died the way so many vampires end up dying, alone and afraid, and which then had been caught and, well, Whatever was happening to the vampires who were being caught and taken away. 
One thing everyone could agree on was that vampires were being caught and taken, but even then, there wasn't an agreement on how big of a problem this was. Moira, it seemed, was not the first near-dead vampire who'd shown up toothless in rabid blood debt. The last one was also missing fingers. Casper theorised that whoever had pulled the teeth had taken the fingers too, so the vampire couldn't even use another instrument to draw blood. Could a vampire grow their fingers back? It depends on how long they were without them, said Casper. This was much more of a surprise to me than either a yes or no could possibly have been. It would take a lot of effort and energy, Casper continued, maybe three, four humans worth of blood. And the teeth? The teeth would grow in first, before the fingers. They're more essential. Nothing will cause a bloodlust faster than a broken tooth, said Casper. He frowned. Well, I suppose pulling the teeth entirely might bring it faster. Why would someone do that? I don't know, said Cass. I think taking the teeth is so that they don't have weapons. But I think it might also be about controlling how they feed. Oh. Casper ran a hand through my hair. Don't worry. I'm safe, he said. I leaned into his hand, twisted under it so I could kiss his palm. Casper. My Casper. I wish you were still safe now. This is not quite dead. Episode 13. Lovesick. There was this song Casper liked. I... I can't remember for the life of me what it was. It was piano. Just piano, I think. God, what was it? I can't remember how it goes. I, I keep thinking about Moira. Toothless, flailing, absent of any sense. A vampire that close to death. Were they meaningfully different from the half-made things that had tried to kill me so many times? Casper told me it happens in stages, a vampire's death. Little by little, they'll lose all of their faculties as they run on less and less blood. Moving, speaking, eventually even thinking is more energy than the blood left in their bodies can provide. And then it's like the blood can't even hold them together anymore. A dead vampire doesn't rot, Casper says. They crumble. They don't even leave bones behind. I can see why someone might want to study that. To understand. Vampire blood is a panacea with caveats. Maybe the way a vampire falls to pieces holds the secrets to figuring out why those caveats are there. Once you understand the mechanism, you can begin to find the cure. But they're people. Maybe they're not human, or not entirely human, or arguably not human. I don't know, but they're undeniably people. By any definition of person, Casper is one. An individual moral agent or whatever, a creature who thinks, feels, suffers, who engages with concepts of right and wrong, who makes decisive judgments, not instinctive ones. Obviously, it's different in different places what you think a person is, you know. 
I know it's contentious. I've, look, I don't have a brain for philosophical shit, but I've read it enough in the last few days that I grasp that this is a controversial and difficult concept. So there's an extent to which you're just going to have to trust me when I say he's a person, but he is. I know it. I can prove it as much as anyone can prove anyone else's personhood. And I'm trying. For hours I have been explaining to you that this man, this vampire, he is a person. And he thinks and feels and he loves. He does all that the way people do. The way human people do. And if you put him in a box and pull out his teeth and he acts like a feral thing, it's not because he is one, it's because that's what you've made him into. Do you understand me? If you're one of the people that took him, if you've come here and found me and I'm dead, if, if this is all you get from this, please know that if anyone could ever tell you whether Casper is a person, it's me. And I'm telling you he is one. Okay? Please. Please. If I can't save myself, at least let me save him. The cold is creeping in on me right now. I know I... I know that really I've made the decision and I made it days ago. I made it when I sat down and started making these recordings. Every word I speak, it's like I'm talking myself deeper into it, isn't it? But the decision's already made. Like Casper knew, I wouldn't run when he told me what it was like for him to hunt and kill. I knew, I think, before I started dying, that there was only one way out of this situation. I keep thinking about the forest. First night we fucked. The night which, to me, felt like the first time we touched that way. Our blood in each other's mouths, his teeth in my flesh, the forest floor under my back. That was it, I think. That was the moment I couldn't turn back. That was when I made this call, that I would drink what's left of Casper's blood, that I would try to be like him, or die in the attempt. It was always, always, always going to be this, wasn't it? From that night in the forest, it was always coming back to this. From the night Ben died, maybe. From that kiss in his car, even. This was inevitable. <sighs> After Moira... The other vampires were starting to get restless. They were at greater risk than they'd imagined, and Casper was no closer to finding the source of these problems than ever. Roz, Eponine, the young ones that lived with them, all of them were angry, chomping at the bit. They were tired of lying even lower than they were used to. They wanted their knights back, and they decided they were going to claim them. I'm not entirely sure what they did that night. Casper wouldn't elaborate beyond that they had organised search parties. I know that there was an uptick in people who came into A&E the following week with low blood pressure and bruises on their necks. And a few more who came in dead. There were no tears in these dead people's throats. There were slices and cuts, short, precise, deliberate, over veins and arteries. There was always blood on the floor where the bodies had been found. Enough that the police would write it off as suicide or homicide. But actually, really, when you looked at it, there was nowhere near enough blood to account for the person's death. They should have been lying in pools of the stuff, but they just weren't. There were only a few well-placed smears and splatters, a dribble from the wound, and that's it. The rest, of course, had 
been drunk. Naturally, Cass didn't want me anywhere near whatever was going down, so we went away for the weekend. He asked me where I wanted to go, and I said Whitby because I thought that would be funniest. It was the height of summer, though, and I hadn't thought about the fact that I'd be spending a lot of the daytime alone wandering around landmarks associated with Dracula whilst my own creature of the night curled up in bed and slept. Day to day, I had almost completely switched my routine to match his and become nocturnal, but it wasn't really practical to do that when we were staying at a bed and breakfast and I couldn't cook my own food. Shops, restaurants and the like tend to be open during ordinary business hours, especially somewhere like Whitby that isn't very big. It was either get up in the day or starve. It was a particularly sultry evening and I was eating an ice cream, which was melting a little, the vanilla running all the way down to my elbow. I had stopped outside this little museum, which had an adjoining shop. The museum, the Vampire's Trove, apparently housed the largest collection of Dracula memorabilia in the world. The adjoining shop was called Bellas and Whistles, and sold a variety of vampire snacks and knickknacks. Once I'd finished my ice cream and made the best of licking my arm clean, I wandered inside. The museum was pretty neat, if tiny. They had some of the original film cells of Bella Lugosi's Dracula, one of Gary Oldman's stupid wigs from that movie he'd been in in the 90s. I knew we'd come to Whitby because I was in danger, but it all felt very far away in that dark museum. They were playing Nosferatu on the back wall from a projector which sat on top of a life-size Dracula wax figure in a glass case. I looked up at the light, twisted my fingers in it, so coffins in the film rested on my knuckles for a moment, then they were gone when the scene cut. Looking at all of those posters and plushes and figurines and film cells and books and hand-painted artworks, the ridiculousness of my life and the situation hit me like a freight train. I couldn't stop laughing. The guy who must have owned the place was looking at me funny. He was smiling in a kind of encouraging way, hoping that somehow I would let him in on the joke, but there was no way to explain. He was wearing a t-shirt that said, I heart vampires. I asked him where he'd bought it, and he told me they sold them in the shop next door, so I wandered through. There was a case on the wall of very expensive fake vampire teeth, nestled in coffin-shaped velvet-lined boxes. The shirts were hanging next to them. I bought one and pulled it over my tank top as I left the shop. The sun was setting as I walked up the street in the direction of our B&B. Casper stepped out of a darkened side street, his cool arm slipping through mine. Nice t-shirt, he said, with a smirk. Thanks, I said. You smell of sugar, he told me. Mm. You smell of booze and honey, but you always smell like booze and honey, so... Casper hummed thoughtfully. He was in a wide-rimmed hat and sunglasses, but his arms were bare, catching the dregs of the sunlight. I stroked one of them. Are you okay like that? He trailed a finger over my throat. Will you let me? He asked. Yeah, I said, and I couldn't stop myself from grinning. Then I'll be fine. It's late enough in the day that it won't burn me anyway. Freckles? I asked, hopefully. He held out his arm, turning it this way and that. I could just barely make out a few ghostly dots between the fine hairs. What would you like to do? Casper asked. We could go to the beach, I suggested. Casper sighed. All right. We wandered down the long steps to the sand. 
The sun was low in the sky, a rich coppery light falling on the parts of the beach that weren't in shadow. Most other people had left, and what few stragglers remained were headed back away from the water, not towards it like us. I turned, and the ruins of Whitby Abbey were filled with red-gold sunlight, and it looked like it was bleeding from every open archway. Casper took off his hat, and the sun caught in the thin strands of his hair which had escaped from the bun at the nape of his neck. When he took off his sunglasses, his eyes were the same shade as the light behind him and seemed to glow. I touched his cheek, leaned into it. Behind us, the waves broke on the sand, a steady thrum, like the pulse Casper was missing. I held my breath as the sun slipped over the horizon, the sky stained in streaks of pale pink struck through with lilac clouds, a sky so beautiful it looked like a painting. Casper looked like a painting too. He reached up and fumbled with his hair until he'd freed it, and it caught on the still warm breeze. The moon is full, he said. I looked over my shoulder, and there, in the still light sky, the white moon stared down at us. It reflected in Cass's eyes. Something in me flared bright then. It was white hot and violent. I wanted to bite him, to taste his blood. I wanted him to crumble under my hands. I felt like I was the creature and he was the vulnerable little human who could break so easily if I put even a toe out of line. I loved him. I loved him. I loved him. I wanted to eat him alive. Catch me, he said, and he ran. I chased him, even though he was so much faster than I was. Inhumanly fast. He kicked off his shoes and ran barefoot through the shallows and I followed, too slow, out of breath. I stopped, doubled over, clutching my side, and in an instant he was behind me, cool lips against the back of my neck. It wasn't yet completely dark. The sky was an inky purple, and the moon was huge and white gold, glowing. It caught the edges of the waves. The water was cool, but not cold. Casper took off his shirt and dropped it on the sand. He didn't turn to look at me. He unbuttoned his jeans and let them fall, stepping out one foot at a time and slowly walked out into the water. He stopped when it was just past his waist, looking up at the moon. His skin seemed to shine under it, eyes closed, face tilted upwards like he was basking in sunlight. We stayed on the beach all night, until the sun started to come up again, an orange halo creeping over the ocean, making a glitter. We slept that day together, huddled under blankets, safe behind tightly closed curtains. I didn't sleep well, but Casper's cool body was the perfect counter to the sweaty heat of the day, and when I woke up, Casper would stir too and trace his fingers up and down my spine along my ribs, like he was mapping my bones. That was... Uh, it was the last good day, really, that... It was a few days after we got back where it happened, where... This happened... But I had work. Casper was busy with clearing up the vampires' attempts to reassert their freedom. And we only saw each other for handfuls of moments at a time. The last time he bit me, I barely remember it. Hurry does it was me on the couch, him on the rug on his knees like we'd done so many times before. You don't think about stuff like that. There was a time when you were a kid where your parents picked you up and put you down and it was the last time. It was the last time you played with sticks in the mud. The last time. 
last you know you know Atlantic salmon when it's time to breed they return to their spawning grounds inland they swim miles and miles upstream against violent currents jumping up short waterfalls climbing rocks their bodies change colour and even shape and when they reach their destination warped by the hardships they've endured often having not eaten for months and existed only on the fat stored in their bodies they just they just die all that and they just die um, so, so I was working a shift and it finished pretty early in the morning this was three, four days after we got back from Whitby and I I'd been waiting for this package and so when I was getting my stuff ready to go home I saw I got this text saying that they tried to deliver the package the night before when I was working and it was at the post office this is also boring and normal it was half five. The post office opened at six, so I figured I'd walk into town, stop by, pick up my package, and then head home to Casper, who'd probably have got in at four, just after sunrise. He'd probably want blood. He'd not been able to feed at the hospital since our first day back at York. The vampire stuff was keeping him away. With that in mind, I took some iron tablets and drank some apple juice, and I walked into town in the early sunlight. I remember there was this kind of pleasant quiet everywhere. A few places like the bakeries were already showing signs of life, smells of baking pastry and bread wafting out into the streets. But otherwise there was nothing happening, not really even any cars on the roads, nothing. I'd walked faster than I thought, so I thought, oh, it'd be nice to go and sit on a bench in the museum gardens for ten minutes on the way, you know. So I, so I went into the museum gardens like the city. It was quiet there. I thought it's just me and the flowers and the trees. It was already pretty warm, even though the sun had only been up for less than two hours, but it had hardly cooled off in the night at all. I was starting to regret my decision to come out, and I was starting to become hyper aware of how sticky with sweat I was, how my clothes felt damp on my back. I couldn't tell if I smelled bad or not. I was embarrassed. I got up to the ruins of the old abbey in the museum gardens and stopped leaning against the old stone. I'd been up to the abbey in Whitby in the afternoon before I'd gone to the vampire trove and bellas and whistles when Casper was sleeping. I touched the walls there too. In parts, they were warm under my fingers after spending hours in the sun, but anywhere the sun hadn't touched pulled heat away from my skin fast like it was drinking it. Casper's skin was like that. So cold it sapped the heat away. Colder than death. The sun was still so low. All the shadows were long and the stone of the abbey was cold under my hand. I leaned against it and took a sharp breath. I sipped my apple juice. A breeze rustled through the flowers and the lush leaves of the trees. Above me, the sky was an endless blue marred only by the dissipating trail of an aeroplane I couldn't even see. I closed my eyes. I smelled it before I heard it, I think. That unmistakable smell of rotting flesh, sweet and rancid and wrong. Then, 
its shambling step, clumsy feet turning in the gravel of one of the nearby paths. My heart sped up. Wherever Casper was, he'd be coming to help soon. He'd be able to feel the fear creeping in at the edges of my mind, so visceral it felt like frost in my limbs. I turned away from the thing and started to run, but as soon as I did, I heard it sniff, and I heard the rhythm of its rotting feet change to match my pace. I turned sharply, heading down the path towards the river. I couldn't hear its feet anymore, but I didn't stop running. I was almost at the gap in the fence that would let me out onto the flagstones at the water's edge. I'd be able to see more clearly in both directions, there would be no trees for it to hide behind if I got to the river, that was my thinking. But I was on the other side of town than I usually went down the river from, and I had forgotten that the pathways were narrower this side. There were more stairs, more trees breaking up the sight lines. I ran down to the water's edge, pausing by a restaurant whose kitchens I could hear starting to grind into action. I looked over my shoulder. There was no sign of the half-maid that had been following me. It was only a short walk to the bridge, and then I could get to the post office, call Cass, and wait for him to come and get me inside where they couldn't reach me. The water of the river lapped. Something was bobbing in the water next to the hull of one of the barges moored nearby. I stared at it. It rose out of the water, running rivulets from its hair and its sopping wet clothes. Its lips hung askew from its mouth, teeth crooked and barely still in its jaw. It looked at me, maybe, but I'm not sure it could see. Its eyes were yellow and cloudy. Who's calling me at four in the morning? It's an unknown number. Alfie? Oh my god. Casper. Where are you? Are you alright? No time. Not safe. Please, listen. You have to leave. Get out of the city. Cass, I can't. You know I can't. The blood. They're coming. Who's coming? Please, Cass, tell me where you are. Alfie. Tell me where you are, Casper. I want to help you, please. Alfie. What? Run. I can't run, Casper. 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 I can't run. Because I'm dying, Cass. I'm dying. I can't run, they're gonna... Oh fuck, what am I gonna do? Oh god, oh god, it's... It's okay, it's okay. The decision is made, it's done already. It's been made for years. I'm doing it. Okay. Okay. Casper. Live. Laugh. Bite.